Greetings, this is Kurt. Welcome to the second part of the three divisions of Book One. If this is your first visit to the Harkin Theater, we recommend you step back and start with Episode One of Prelude, The Hostage Prince. Otherwise, please make yourself comfortable as we continue the performances. As always, if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and share on your favorite platform. Comments or questions directed to our email will be answered promptly. If you care to help in keeping these complex productions coming, please buy me a coffee via the website coffee.com slash the Harkin Theater. Unlike my wife's favorite morning beverage, me, I prefer tea with cream and sugar, the donation website coffee.com is spelled ko-fi.com slash the Harkin Theater. Refer to episode descriptions for the exact address, our email, and our secure website. And thank you for listening. Step through the gateway and enter the universe of the Harkin Theater. A Bridge of Doom by Kurt Paul Hotelling Part 2 Agents of the Dark One A Prince's Second Soldier. The heat of the forbidden power was slow in ebbing. His body still pulsed like a great furnace when Gawan was awakened by an inquisitive nose touching his shoulder. He rolled over and looked up with relief to see the friendly face of his horse peering at him with concern. The specter was gone. By the angle of the light, he guessed he had been out for a good while, yet the afternoon was still new. I'm... I'm hot. He drew an arm across his sweat-covered brow, then responded to his steed's question. Oof. I'll, I'll be all right, I think. Malay blinked his large brown eyes with understanding at his master, lifted his head to look around, and blew noisily to express his impatience. Gawan remained supine and allowed the cool ground to wick away his heat as he tried to sort through the startling amount of knowledge to which he had been exposed in that brief instant. After inspection, he found his hand no longer covered with blood or wounds, yet the shards of his ruined crystal lay scattered all around him. At the same time, he could feel the mystic lore he had gained from the entity slipping away quickly, the knowledge never meant to be comprehended by a mere mortal. Helpless to prevent the loss, he lay quiet and tried to retain some of the secrets. Several images stood out in his mind. From these, he ascertained exactly what happened to Rothson and why, and who was this girl to which the specter referred. But why he, Gawan, posed a threat to the specter's purpose, he could not fathom, except perhaps by being an enchanter like Rothson, though far from the master's ability and level of achievement. He discovered the torrential heat dissipated quickly once he let go of most of the images. Scenes just as vivid and clear as the death visions inflicted upon him. Something he regretted, allowing hundreds of tiny gems to slip through his mental fingers to be lost forever. For with the images, much of his memory of them also faded. But such higher knowledge was not meant to be contained within the realm of mortal men. Feeling better, he sat up and stroked Malhe's nose in reassurance then froze as he detected a presence. Seeing nothing corporeal, he shut his eyes and felt out the area psychically. He was pleasantly surprised to sense the astral form of the gray cat, Leomame, being stroked in the arms of Rothson. Both thanked him and then faded away. Standing, the enchanter brushed himself off and noted his good fortune at surviving the encounter with the specter. Malay, my friend, we have lingered here too long. We must travel quickly. His horse nodded and wickered an eager reply. 
Checking the saddle, then mounting, he reined the elfin steed down the slope and stopped when they reached the road. Then he reached forward to stroke Male's neck. We must hurry. Lives are at stake. Now is the time. Fly swiftly. Fly for the city. Maledon! <laughs> the blue pine forest drank in the light of the afternoon suns as a swift breeze on four legs vanished up the road. Chapter 4 God, this feels weird. Paul and Marie strolled down a corridor lined alternately with windows and mirrors. The strains of an orchestral dance wafted through the air. What's wrong? She squeezed his hand gently. Don't you close fit? I thought the royal tailor had found something for you. Paul looked at her with a self-conscious smirk. Indeed, the royal tailor and his assistants had outfitted him nicely, despite the frequent bowing of heads and nods of obeisance. As any aspiring actor, Paul had hoped for earning celebrity on his own world, but with the population in the royal city believing him a demigod, he found increasing annoyance with their overly reverent attitudes. Just having a simple conversation with anyone was next to impossible, except, of course, for Marie. Worse, since he didn't know how to meet their expectations, he worried he might somehow slip or stumble in the role and disappoint everyone. It's fine, really. Everything fits. But this isn't a Shakespearean costume, and we're not going on stage to perform. She blinked at him with a slight frown. What's this pear-shaking costume? He grinned. Sorry, I'm not making much sense to you, am I? What's wrong, Paul? I'm used to acting, pretending to be all sorts of people in all sorts of places, especially medieval roles. Now all of a sudden I'm in a genuine palace in a real world with real people and real... Marie pressed her fingers over his lips to quiet him. Are you trying to say that you, a celebrated demigod who has been requested to attend the royal gala but the king himself... Or nervous? He fidgeted with the fringe of his wine-colored tabard and shuffled his feet slightly. Well, yes, I guess so. She patted his hand in hers. I'd trade you for how I felt the first time I rode on your back. Good point. And, being a demigod, if you didn't want to go, I don't believe anyone would even think of arguing with you. Except me. Paul's gaze wandered down the corridor. Because you know I'm not capable of making lightning strike. <laughs> Demigod. Stop that. He met her admonishment with moderate surprise. To my people and my king, you are a demigod, proven by your rescue of the prince one rayad ago. If you can't accept that, then show me your talents and at least act the part. Regarding her with respect, Despite the fact this was the first time he had seen her in a dress and with her hair unbraided, he lifted his head. Yes, my lady. He had always liked her straightforward manner. That's better. She glanced down at her yellow gown and shook out some wrinkles. Now, care you to escort me to the ball? When she looked up again, she caught him complimenting her with his eyes, and she fought back the urge to blush. But of course, my lady. He offered her his arm. She hooked her hand inside his elbow, and they walked to the end of the corridor, where a liveried servant in a large feathered hat bowed and unlatched the grand doors for them. As they entered the festival hall, Paul slowed and stared, his mouth dropping open, and would have stopped if not for Marie tugging him gently along. He surveyed the magnificent domed chamber in all directions as they gradually descended the wide marble stair. The polished ceiling was adorned with a single gigantic mural depicting heroes, heroines, and gods in the heavens. Some of the supporting marble columns were covered with intricately carved grotesques, their mixture of austere and benevolent countenances dispassionately observing the celebration. Other columns were formed into statues of fierce kings, brandishing swords. 
Large rectangular mirrors lined the wall spaces between the inset columns of mottled marble and warmly reflected wall sconces and hundreds of candles burning in three massive chandeliers suspended from heavy chains disappearing into the dome. Paul twisted his head around and up to see a cantilevered balcony with a balustrade of dark, highly polished wood behind which the orchestra sat, its music projecting up into the dome where it magnified so as to easily be heard throughout the chamber. Andrew Carnegie, eat your heart out. The polished stone floor below was alive with many elaborately garbed couples moving with the music. As they reached the bottom of the stair, Paul began to fancy he was in his element, as memory of his performances of the Bard's plays impressed upon his conscious mind. The dress and mannerisms of the society displayed before him was obviously futile, yet contained a smattering of what he would translate as Roman attitudes. Remembering the stink and filth of the streets during his first visit, he was glad to be associating with the upper society. As if on a silent command, all the guests dancing on the floor came to a stop and gazed politely in his direction, though the music from above continued. Many heads bowed simply, while others made some sort of sign with their hands turning gently in front of their foreheads. Remembering Marie's admonishment in the corridor, Paul quickly gathered his wits about him, inwardly donned the role granted him, and lifted his chin deferentially toward the guests. He then nodded with a lift of his own hand, hoping to convey a gesture of continuance. No one moved, all eyes in the elaborate chamber now on him. Maintaining a confident expression, Paul moved his gaze across the many faces watching him expectantly, curiously, and in some genuine awe, whilst secretly he panicked, wondering, What the hell do I do now? A firm tug on his sleeve reminded him of his companion, and he turned to Marie, then gestured an offer to dance with her. She curtsied, nodded gracious acceptance, and took his hands. Paul listened to the pulse of the music and tried to remember the dance step everyone had been doing before they had stopped. Something similar to a um, Scottish reel for couples instead of threesomes? Or a jig, perhaps? His review was interrupted by Marie subtly but urgently guiding him into motion on the main floor. After a shuffling near miss, he improvised into a traditional waltzing box step, took the lead, and spun tranquilly with Marie in his arms. She blinked at him with mild perplexity as she looked down at how his feet moved, then adjusted her own feet accordingly. Paul couldn't help but grin triumphantly. Decorum be damned. I'm a demigod, and I'll dance how I want to. Marie seemed to sense his thoughts and smiled encouragingly. My lord... To his delight, their audience returned to their dancing with some actually studying and imitating him. Perhaps being a demigod celebrity isn't all that bad. Having an ear for classical music, as well as close friends in the school of music, he took interest in the composition of the orchestra and judged it to be comprised mostly of strings that looked remarkably like violins, woodwinds, all of which looked different from what he knew, and primitive brass horns including what he would call trumpets, though they lacked the familiar mechanisms of those he knew. Regardless, the musicians were obviously adept, their performance polished and most impressive to his ear. Comparatively, their music seemed a mixture of Bach-style jigs and Haydn-style lightness, with brief brassy sections reminiscent of the Baroque composers. Its effect mellowed his mood, and he found himself gazing deep into Marie's eyes. She smiled back warmly. You're doing fine. In fact, this is close to a style of dance that was only just recently allowed in the noble circles. He remembered his own world's history and the acceptable style of dance permitted during the medieval centuries, mostly restrictive and quite chaste, and realized his fortuity in not having shocked their company. Their immediate attention diverted as the dance changed into a gavotte. 
It was as if the dancers responded to his thoughts as they stepped back from one another and alternately paired off in blending lines, and for a moment Paul had that nagging feeling of being in a corporeal dream. Separated from Marie by the motions of the dance, Paul engaged in numerous carefully nodded greetings from the others. He observed with interest the diadems or bejeweled embroidered crests worn by those apparently of high station. Dukes, barons, and landed knights, he speculated. In some of these fleeting interchanges, he perceived motivations of social status and greed rather than true loyalty to their fellow men. Some, though outwardly respectful and awestruck, carried the unmistakable glower of prejudice of him and his reputation, or perhaps disapproval of his company in general. A demigod rubbing elbows with mortals. What were his true intentions among them? Politicians, the same everywhere. Feeling his mood deflating, he bowed out of the minuet and worked his way back to Marie. The music changed, and they danced exclusive from the others again. His mood lightened almost instantly with her touch, and he indulged himself in the sensations of the music and her warmth. A distant memory of taking Annie to her senior prom imposed itself momentarily, but was swiftly smothered in the wonder of this adventure. Besides, waltzing, or whatever this is, is so much more intimate than gyrating the deafening rock and roll beats. The dance ended and the subsequent applause evaporated as a trumpet fanfare from the top of the grand stair filled the hall. Someone of whom Marie identified quietly to Paul as the Chancellor of State appeared through the open doors. His Majesty King Anariak Pejor! The guest stepped back and knelt to the stately figure and his escort that entered, creating a clear passage from where Paul and Marie stood all the way to the top of the stair. Paul was just about to follow suit with their company when Marie elbowed him surreptitiously. Her stern expression and the flick of her eyes at the guests surrounding them as she went to one knee conveyed the message that Paul was to do no such thing. He quickly realized that his title and his status as a demigod probably made him an equal, if not a superior, to the king. Suddenly and keenly aware via Marie's silent prompting that his every motion, every subtlety of expression were being studied by their audience, Paul relied comfortably on his formal training in dramatic techniques. He quickly reviewed everything he had ever learned about the protocols of kings and nobility, which wasn't much, and then recalled the meetings of kings in various plays he had seen or performed and decided those examples would have to suffice. Coming to a stop at the head of the stair, the king surveyed the festival hall, an image of self-confidence in his flowing white robes, gold cincture, and above his brow the wide gold band of royalty. Feeling deeply moved by the image of the monarch standing proudly, Paul noted the crown insignia intertwined with a golden battle cat blazing from the breast of the king's blue tunic and overlay, and compared it with symbols of state he had known from his own world. Standing just behind and right of the king, and holding a broadsword aloft with hilt pointing skyward, was his escort, wearing a partial brigandine, red sash, and insignia of the same fighting feline. The jeweled hilt hovering behind Anariok's head glittered almost magically in the reflected candlelight. Seeing Paul's wonderment, Marie lifted her head slightly. That's Levince, his champion. The warrior's face was a mask of cold strength and defiance that matched the polished tempered steel gripped in his gloved hands daring opposition to the king's power. Resting eyes on Paul, standing alone except for Marie kneeling beside him, Kajor smiled in greeting. My lord, your grace. His eyes never moving from Paul's, the king gestured to his champion, who lowered and sheathed his sword, then descended the grand stair and strode confidently across the floor. Paul studied his face, having seen it only once before and not for very long. Though young, 
he supposed, for a king, his clean-shaven, slender, chiseled countenance, framed by light chestnut hair, carried the confidence that only genuine experience could bestow. Kajor's arms lifted wide, and they embraced formally, then kissed each other's cheeks. Intense hazel eyes regarded him with joy. Welcome to Foreign! As if on command, the orchestra struck up a new dance, and the celebration continued. Releasing his firm grip on Paul's upper arms, Kajor turned to clasp hands with several couples approaching them, the restart of the music apparently the signal for further greetings with nobles and guests. Isn't he wonderful? Paul was well-educated in the power of pageantry and image when properly implemented. He watched Anariok exchange greetings and smiles as he made his way around the crowd and suddenly wondered what it was that made a king. Charisma? Obviously, Kajor possessed that. Strength. Perhaps best represented by his champion, who followed the king like a shadow, with the sheathed sword resting across his palms. Wisdom. Only too well did history show the flaws and simple human weaknesses of those with absolute power. He recalled James Goldman's play, The Lion in Winter. He noticed Levince was still in very close proximity to the king, his stern expression unmoved, like stone, his eyes closely watching everyone who approached, assessing, weighing, judging. Paul was reminded of Secret Service agents hovering near a president, and he smothered a smile. Once the initial flurry of greetings were completed, Kajor turned back to Paul and Marie and winked cheerfully, then glanced toward an archway where heavy curtains had been drawn back. Torchlight flickered invitingly upon a broad balcony, replete with dressed tables and chairs, overlooking the fortress city and the night beyond. Allow us to step outside where we can better hear one another. Would you not care to dance first? We are honored. Anariak smiled graciously. But our subjects would find us, as a couple, quite odd. To be sure, Your Highness, I was referring to your coupling with a lady. Ah, but we were white, my prince. He saw Paul's lack of understanding. Tis tradition, my fellow. The king does not dance unless he has a queen with whom he can dance. In addition, he twitched his cheek conspiratorially. We have no need of complications for making what would seem to others early alliances with over-eager ladies and their rank-seeking fathers. He turned to the formidable warrior attending him patiently. Allow us to introduce our close friend and champion, Lavence. The dark-haired, green-eyed warrior bowed deeply, his expression enigmatic, apparently not affected in the least by Paul's presence or reputation. You may take your leave, my friend, and indulge in the festivities. Protocol is satisfied. A glint of humor flashed in Levince's eyes as he hung the sheathed sword from his belt, nodded shortly, and stepped away towards a cluster of young ladies hovering nearby. They twittered with excitement. Anariak rested his hands on Paul and Marie's shoulders and guided them through the archway onto the balcony. Gathering at the balustrade, they looked at the city beyond for a moment, its distant lamps and torches flickering like fitful stars. And with your return on this auspicious day, any last lingering doubts as to my place as rightful heir have been dashed. Paul was puzzled by this statement, remembering the cheering citizens upon Kajor's return from being a hostage of the Grimms. Were there any doubts, Your Highness? I doubt it, my friend. He smiled momentarily at his own witticism. At the time of my coronation, there were a brace of powerful dukes, backed by priests of the Kirika, that challenged my right to the crown. Fortunately, your arrival and rescue plus events at my coronation... In the very Kirika, where priests sowed unrest and disapproval towards myself, proved them wrong. His eyes fairly glowed. When God and demigod deigned to reveal their hand among us, any doubt meets ruin. Seeing Paul's wide-eyed amazement at this brief explanation, Kajor smiled again. Does this surprise you, my lord, that such worries can plague an heir and king, even after his crowning? Indeed it does, your highness. Thus, the very reason for this celebration. So your timely intervention and my rescue will not be forgotten. 
He grasped Paul's shoulder in a comradely fashion. And your arrival today seals the accord and the unity of my kingdom. I thank you. My father's fathers thank you. Paul sought an appropriate response, wondering how he should converse candidly with a personage of royalty. Remembering an acting teacher's statement that, Your audience, no matter how astute or important or celebrated, still has to make their toilet. He decided to speak frankly and with the respect he was being shown. I can only return the sentiment and thank you, Your Highness, for welcoming me into your city and your kingdom. Kajor nodded and smiled. Call me Anariak, please. One tires of continual accolades throughout his day. And to our people, we are equals of a sort. And I assume from what my royal messenger here speaks, that I should address you as Paul? Certainly, Anariak. Excellent. And how long shall we be blessed by your presence? Wishing he could simply shrug, Paul thought better of such careless responses and cogitated a more elaborate reply. I'm afraid I don't know how long I'll be here simply because I am not aware of the exact reason for my arrival. Mildly perplexed, Kajor raised his eyebrows. Then this celebration of my rescue one riad ago is not the reason for your presence? To be honest, the timing is only a small puzzle compared to the mysteries and powers at work here for which I do not have answers. Put simply, I have no idea what brought me here. He caught Marie's eye. But I can assure you that I am delighted to be here nevertheless. He couldn't help remembering a scene from the MGM movie, The Wizard of Oz, when the humbug wizard announced to his citizens that he would be leaving them to go confer, converse, and otherwise hobnob with my brother wizards. When in reality, or fantasy, he actually had no idea where he was to end up in his balloon. At the same time, rest assured, Anariak, that you shall be the first, <clears throat> rather the second person, I tell anything once I become aware. Seeing the king's distress with what he considered his most eloquent withdrawal from the subject, Paul came up with an embellishment. Consider that events in your life are affected by the higher powers. Thus are events in my life affected. Anariok's disappointment shifted to understanding. Nevertheless, I have found Marie's tales of her adventures visiting your home a delightful distraction from my duties at court, among the speakers and upon the throne. Always refreshing. A man tires of day after day of observing subjects holding their heads to their knees and mumbling compliments or tolerating others bent on manipulating favors from me. Marie nodded in silent agreement, only too aware of these truths after her infrequent observations of the royal court at the king's request. Paul thought of how dull, dirty, and crowded was his home compared to this world. Would you care to return the favor? Anything, my friend. So far, the best I've been able to offer you in exchange for your magnificent favor of rescue from certain death is a mere pittance. This gala, how may I serve thee? Would you tell me more about your home and especially the events of your coronation that proved your right of succession? Seeing Anariok's smile of satisfaction, Paul knew he had struck upon either a favorite subject or considering what the king had said about the daily chores of his court, a favorite yet neglected pastime of simple discussion and banter with an equal. Where shall I begin? The torch-lit streets were alternately quiet and noisy, those citizens not remaining at one of the many smaller celebrations among the commoners in the city, wandering in small clumps from tavern to guest house, doing their part to stimulate the merriment. Even the guardsmen on watch were given short shifts in order that all be able to enjoy the holiday. No one was to be kept out if they didn't want to be. Unnoticed by any revelers, a solitary cloaked figure walked purposefully toward the entryway of the Magian Alliance's keep. Unlike the common folk who either shunned the place or simply ignored it, he strode up the steps and through the archway. Enchanter Gaewan stopped at the first intersection in the corridor, removed his hood, and looked both ways, wondering what to do first. 
Should he report his presence to the Archmage before proceeding? To what end other than formality, seeing as his concern centered around foregone matters? Yet he felt there was a purpose for him visiting. Pursing his lips, he slid his eyes back and forth as he reached out with his sixth sense. He detected no one close, the stone structure strangely quiet, its occupants no doubt elsewhere in the city, enjoying the holiday. The sconces along the walls burned steadily. Trusting his intuition, he turned and followed a subtle tug on his awareness. The stench of smoke and burned flesh grew strong going up the spiral stair to the top floor of the three-story tower. With his trained eye, he detected the faint glimmer of a lock spell on the blackened door above. Rothson's untimely death had frightened the Silver Council. Knowing what he did, Gawan held no blame against them. Not completely sure of himself, he stood outside the chamber. What will I find? Scenes of violent death are never a pleasant experience for the psychically sensitive person. The negative energies around the spilt blood, a feeding ground for entities and horned things. Regardless, he had little time for indecision and pressed his palm on the door, invoking the gentle enchantment for passing through magical locks without breaking them. The chamber was dark. Gawan invoked a sphere of yellow that appeared above his head. The wash of soft light chased back the shadows. Then he examined the room's contents. There were mostly ashes, charred remains of books and scrolls, a blackened table, and a dark stain covering the center of the floor. Avoiding the stain, he worked his way around the chamber, not touching anything, not sure what exactly he sought. Perhaps confirmation of what he had learned through his momentary link with the specter, that Rothson had met with a terrible death which would be visited upon others if he, Gawan, could not avert it. He did have some ideas, but their success would depend on those with whom he would have to discuss the matter soon. At the same time, he had an urgent feeling to be away from the city long before dawn, beyond the place where he had encountered the specter, if he was to be safe from their influence. Why, he did not know, but he did not question it either. Since boyhood, he had trusted his intuition. He would not stop now, especially considering the phenomenal amount of knowledge he experienced through contact with the specter. Though very little of it had adhered to his conscious memory, he found the silent voice of his intuition increased in strength. This he dared not ignore. Surveying the devastation, he realized there was nothing here that would help him meet Rothson's dying plea. However, when he turned to leave, he noticed something odd. On a table under the remains of a large fire-ravaged book was a corner of black cloth. Except for the heavier things, all the flammables in the chamber were either ash or mostly consumed. He stepped over, shifted the book remnants aside, and discovered the cloth undamaged and of considerable size, but not weight. He lifted it in his fingers, finding it smooth to the touch and light as silk, the thin weave appearing almost iridescent in the witchlight. Rothson had been a direct descendant of the famous master enchanter Roth, who, over 1,400 riads ago, had guided King Kresden and his people to safety on this land, far from the Holocaust firestorms of Felstar across the Kiantavik Ocean. With such a long family history, Rothson no doubt enjoyed many heirlooms and relics. Given this fact, Gawan reasoned this was most likely fairy web, a rare cloth dating back sun cycles. Considering the destruction of the man and his belongings, it was easy to see why the cloth had been overlooked. That is, if anyone had been here for other than to collect the Master Enchanter's remains. <sighs> Probably not. Examining the material's size and construction, he supposed it to be a cloak lining, its exact properties yet to be known. There would be opportunity for experimentation later. 
For now, just knowing it was resistant to fire was enough. Feeling the pressure of limited time and many tasks yet to do, Gaewan folded up the lining, stuffed it into a pocket, and headed for the stairs, resealing the room and leaving its remaining secrets for others to explore, if they dared. And against all the advice of my closest friends and tutors, except for one, I chose to hold my sword before me, as was written in the ancient tradition. And lo, a miracle of light burst forth from the dais, and not of a magical sort. On his own world, Paul noted that Marie thought electrical light was magic, but of what Anariok spoke, he was curious. Can you describe this difference? Between this miracle and magic light? The king removed a silver goblet brimming with liquid from the salver presented by an attendant. He took a sip and savored Mm. its flavor. Light such as mages create seems to pulse subtly. To the untrained eye, it's perhaps a reflection of the conjurer's heartbeat. Though I am no expert in these matters, I assure you. And if this light during my coronation had been magical in its origin, it would have been noticeable and just as quickly disregarded. But it was not. On the contrary, the sheer intensity was, I am told, nearly blinding like that of the suns. As it was surrounding me, I was not affected, but could see the entire Kirika assembly squinting and shielding their eyes just before they knelt, and in some cases, prostrated themselves. In fact, the light of dawn had only just touched the tops of the tallest windows, lining the dais behind me. You mentioned one of your advisors was the exception. Who? Rothson. Rothson? What did he tell you? To do as my heart dictated and not my worries. The result was a spectacle of the like that had not been seen for many sun cycles, probably. Truly, the hand of God, not magic tricks, blessed my crowning that day. Just as your rescue of me on this day, one riad ago, my friend. I can only hope your problems with the Grimms have eased since then. Anariak shut his eyes and tried to shake off the ghosts of leering reptilian faces breathing into his, the prick of blades at his throat, the hissing laughter, and the whispers of ruin for him and his people. Indeed, this last war might have seen them victorious if I had been killed. The kingdom would have been torn apart by fear land disputes, and a ghastly final fight to the death with the walking reptiles. He lifted his cup in salute. Where are the Grimms now? In the past twelve moons, they have withdrawn again to the desert mountain ranges, in the unexplored southwest, hiding their tribes from our weary eyes. This does not impugn they were cowardly. Much to the contrary, for over fourteen hundred riads, they have not let us forget their hatred. This is a celebration. Marie was uncomfortable with seeing her king melancholy. We should talk of happier things. With a smile, Anariak turned and touched a finger to her chin. You are a bright spark, Marie. He took her hand and regarded it with fondness. I shall never forget, after so many days of torture and dry, scaly skin rubbing against mine, how wonderful it was to feel your touch when you came for me. You are too kind, sire. And you are too humble, my dear. Part of what makes you so charming. As the king helped himself to another long draft, Paul noticed his cup had yet to become even half empty. There seemed to be more whenever he tipped it to his lips. What manner of cup is that? This? He focused briefly on the goblet, as if just realizing its existence. Oh, this was a coronation gift from the Magian Alliance. They knew of my appreciation for good drink, and they thought this cup would be fitting, in order that we can spend more time with our guests than at the fountain. Clever thing. It never empties after being filled, unless upended all at once. And more importantly, it cannot be tainted by enemies. Impeccable forethought. 
Paul remembered historical heads of state murdered by poison potions and powders dropped into cups from rings with secret caches and the mythical unicorn horns that were the preferred drinking vessel of royalty because it was believed the horn would sweat if poison were contained within. I've enjoyed conversation with the Silver Council, Rothson in particular, though lately they've been rather quiet. I have to wonder if perhaps something is amiss in their sphere. Anariok was interrupted by the polite tap of a page's finger on his shoulder and a whispered message. Hmm. I'm ignoring my social responsibilities. I must go and pay respects to my guests. Many of them have traveled for half a moon to attend this gala. He gripped Paul's arm with gladness. Do come to my chambers on the morrow, where I should delight in a more informal chat. Until then, please enjoy yourselves. Marie curtsied again, and Paul bowed as the king stepped away to accompany the page attending him at the archway. The orchestra's tempo and volume seemed to increase as he entered the hall, as if the music welcomed him back with excitement and anticipation. As he observed Anariok's confident stroll and commanding air, Paul realized he had gotten thirsty. With Marie at his side still holding his hand, he found his way to one of the tables occupying embrasures throughout the balcony and the festival hall. As he chose two smaller goblets brimming with a colorful beverage, he looked interestedly at the food, remembered that he had yet to eat anything of this world, and decided it wasn't as different as he might have expected. Fruits, cheeses, nuts delicately prepared meats and spices, and, of course, sweetmeats. This was a gathering of the upper crust. Therefore, the food would be fancier than what the common folk enjoyed. Glad for the privilege, he reached for one of the sweetmeats, discovering Marie's hand darting around his to snatch a similar treat. Encouraged by her mischievous smile as she popped it in her mouth, he escorted her to a small table situated beside a towering hedge that hid it from most of the balcony. No doubt by design for intimate meetings. Having never seen the night sky, he looked up in wonder at the crescent moon of blue and green and the unfamiliar constellations dimmed by scudding clouds. He sensed Marie's eyes on him. Anariak seems to carry his drink very well. Probably because he doesn't imbibe much of the fermented stuff until much later. Or in private. Marie was aware of the king's careful habit of restraint with wines and ales at the suppers and functions he shared with his subjects. I think like avoiding dancing with any ladies, presently he is also prudent with his drink. Many a tongue loosened with too much ale have brought too much woe to vulgar men in the form of wives. (laughs) Seems a very careful man. If you understood how hard he's worked to draw together what was about to become a kingdom splintered by religious bigotry and struggles for authority, you wouldn't fault him his vigilance. But I don't fault him. I was just observing him. Good. I hate for anyone to hold mistaken perceptions of him. Do you think we might turn the subject toward you? Me, my lord? Of what interest could a mere mortal hold for a demigod? More than you think. All fun aside, do you know how I feel about you? Remembering a confused and sleepy young man standing practically naked in his small chamber, his initial disregard for her mission, his backhanded compliment in Rothson's chambers, followed by the magnificence of his transformation and his sudden departure by the specter's frightening methods, and comparing that time to this when he had arrived calling her name, embracing her, escorting her, and dancing joyfully with her, she had to admit, I'm not sure, no. You were uncomfortable with me the first time you were here, as if I was an older sister or something. Paul lowered his eyes with subdued shame. I'm sorry. I was confused when I was here. I understand that. And if what you told the king is true... You've returned for unknown reasons and by unknown powers. But I think you know more than you care to admit. More? Why are you here, Paul? I think you know. You favor me? He smiled crookedly at the quaint terms she used. Very much. 
But you are a demi... You are not from here. How could we consider courtship? His mythology class and the tales of Zeus descending to earth and laying with a mortal woman decided the matter for him, but he couldn't explain other world legends to Marie. He squeezed her fingers gently. I am Paul, a common person in my world. I just happen to have an extra talent in this world. More than one. She recalled his ability to vanish in a crowd and not be seen passing through a closely guarded gate. I'm not sure what you're thinking of, but it has no bearing on how I feel. Demigod, hero, man, boy, whatever. I can't help but acknowledge the feelings that have brought me here. With a frown, she deciphered his meaning. So, despite what you told Anariak about the mysteries and unseen powers, you are admitting now that your desire for me brought you back. A small voice in her thoughts asked, For whom did he call when he first arrived? Paul looked uncomfortable. I wouldn't call it desire, exactly. I don't want to seem crude. She smiled upon hearing his distinction and wanted him to speak his heart. Someone who wasn't afraid of her. Then what would you call it exactly? She feared his answer and tore her eyes away from his. No, don't. What's wrong? Have I offended you? She shook her head, released his hands, and turned away. Do you want me to leave you alone? No! Marie. She looked back at him with misty eyes. All the loneliness of the past Riyadh seemed to crowd into her feelings. Don't ever leave me again. I don't intend to. He was glad for her demand. She did care for him, his company. Damn it, Paul. It's not you, but it is you. His heart wrenched with guilt as he wondered how he could have caused her so much pain. I don't understand. No, you don't. She clenched and unclenched her fists. Ever since our flight together, ever since we rescued the prince, I have been hated and despised and ignored. No one hates you. Yes, they do. She dabbed at her eyes with a small handkerchief from her sleeve. Don't you see? I have been close to a demigod. I have touched him and flown with him. To the people, I am not like them. They daren't talk when I'm around because they think I will claim omniscience of Mary the King. I'm an outcast. It's as if we've already been courting or betting together as far as they're concerned. If it weren't for the King's favor and respect, I might have been completely ignored. She tossed a hand in the air. Gods, I'm a lowly messenger, a commoner indentured to royal service. What business have I to be rescuing the heir to the throne? The curses, curses of being, being a celebrity. But most important of all, how can I accept your hand in courtship when you will be leaving again? How do you know? I don't know when and where I'll be going. Until you become aware of your place, just as a mother claims a lost child or a king declare his right to the throne, it does not stand to reason you will stay. If this world be your home, then it has yet to accept you. Stunned at her insight, he had to admit her point. Of all things he was sure about, he knew this place was yet to be for him. At the same time, he resisted the circumstance. He grasped her hands again, as if he could somehow keep a firm hold on her, on this world. If I must leave, then come with me. Marie stared at his dark fingers intertwining with hers. How? How? Like you did before, with, with that medallion and Bomali. That's impossible now. She shook her head, the unwanted grief surfacing again. I don't believe it. Despondent, she closed her eyes against the tears. Why not, Marie? Only Rothson knew the secret of that journey. Knew? Rothson. He translated just last night. No one knows why. Translated? She wagged her hand trivially as if to belie her distress. Every thinker term. He's dead. How? He didn't seem that old. Adare, the archmage. Wouldn't say, but it was horrible. Fire, smoke, something terrible happened to him. To say mages do not die easily. Perhaps it's true of enchanters, too. 
Defeated, Paul sagged in his chair. To have come all this way just to be denied that which he truly wanted. Then there's nothing? Nothing. Her desolation squelched the fire in his heart. They stared in different directions and remained silent for a long time, while inside the festival hall, the gala continued. Bridge of Doom, Part 2, Agents of the Dark One. The sound plays were written, recorded, directed, mastered, and produced by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Copyright 2022. Character voices are performed by William Bloxham, Geraldine Cummings, Kevin Norris, Ira Lively, Todd Suarez, and H, the Great and Powerful. The novel and sequels of the Quintology are available through Amazon.com or on Kindle Books, can be ordered at your favorite bookseller, or can be purchased directly and at best price, with additional bonuses from the author by submitting a request to our email. Music for the Harkin Theater was composed and performed by Evan McDonald, Florian Serral, Francesco D'Andrea, Atlas Mason, High Street Music of London, and licensed by PremiumBeat.com. Public domain music performances are licensed under Lieber Lieber Creative Commons. More detailed music and performer credits can be requested from the Harkin Theater at Yahoo.com. Sound effects and original Foley provided by Cusp Studios and the BBC Library. This was recorded on location in the universe.